This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When Tammy and I and Susan were away, you guys did the posing as us edition. And when Shane is away, was away, and we did the shameless edition, the utterly shameless edition. And today it's the combination of the two. Everybody else, except including Shane, is away. So we're going to kind of, I think we have to like combine the two and vamp off that. The even more shameless edition. Even more shameless, but also everybody's replaced. But also everyone else edition. Continuing. With a a body double. (laughs) Continuing shamelessness. It's kind of like the the Trump administration. Like nobody's there, you know. We're all acting. We're all acting. But we can stay more than 210 days. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the acting edition. I'm Benjamin Wittes, acting I guess I'm the only one who's not acting. I'm the real, permanent, Senate-confirmed Benjamin Wittes, joined here in the Jungle Studio by acting Shane Harris, Scott Anderson, acting Tamara Wittes, um, Margaret Taylor, and acting Susan Hennessy, Quinta Jurassic. So I think I'm, I'm the first assistant here to have stepped up to Susan's position. I don't know whether under what provision of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act you two have been I'm just a random appointed. GS-15 <laughs> pulled in. I'm just honored to be Tammy Wittes. <laughs> no, it's just everyone's acting. On the show today, everybody's acting. The Secretary of Defense, the acting Secretary of Defense, steps down amidst domestic violence allegations and everybody else is acting too continued confrontation between Congress and the Trump administration over oversight matters. And is the NSA and Cyber Command all over the Russian power grid? Let's start with nobody home at the executive branch. Which parts of the government are not headed by acting officials at this point? Well, I think it, it may actually be easier just to list the, the acting. So we currently have a acting defense secretary, an acting secretary of Homeland Security, an acting UN ambassador, an acting chief of staff, an acting FEMA director, an acting ICE director, an acting USCIS director, and an acting FAA administrator. All right. And so the, the Pat Shanahan story went to, into the realm of the truly bizarre yesterday what do we know, Scott, about kind of where we are with the Defense Department? Yeah, absolutely. Well, within you know minutes, essentially, of the notification that Shanahan was stepping down uh, and kind of pulling back his nomination as Defense Secretary, uh, we had word that Mark Esper, the current Secretary of the Army, uh, was stepping up to take that position as the acting uh, Secretary of Defense uh, or acting acting Secretary of Defense, perhaps in this place. 
This is, for one time, a nomination that appears to be more or less consistent with the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, the law that governs this. We've seen a lot of creative kind of actions around this, but this is pretty straightforward. He was all right, but but let me oh, yeah. let me let me query you on that because I thought one of the principles of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act was that you couldn't have double actings, and. I assume this doesn't implicate that problem. I mean, Shanahan was acting and then he turns into a puff of smoke and now we have an acting in his place. But I assume that's not a problem because Espers is himself Senate confirmed. Is that right? That's exactly right. Uh, You know, there's a couple categories of people that the FVRA says that the president can pull in in an acting capacity. And one of those is other people who have been Senate confirmed. And Esper was confirmed in his current role. It does raise one sort of hitch, though, in that Esper's name is at the top of a lot of people's list to be the nominee for the new Secretary of Defense, uh, including many people in Congress who have already come out in support of him. If he's nominated, he has to then step down as the acting Secretary of Defense because you cannot, under the FVRA, be both the acting Secretary of Defense and the nominee if you came in through this route. Right. That's exactly right. And there's one loophole that Esper doesn't fill, which is that if you are the first assistant to the departed official and you served as the first assistant for 90 days, then you can both be the acting head and uh, be nominated for the position. So that's what happened with Gina Haspel when she was nominated for CIA director. But as Scott says, that is not Esper's position. Can we just back up for a minute? Because I I just have some questions in my mind about the sort of congressional side of what happened with Shanahan. So, you know, Shanahan was nominated and confirmed as the deputy secretary of defense. And what I I did nominations uh, in the Senate for the Foreign Relations Committee literally for years. Um, And it's a different committee. This is the Senate Armed Services Committee. But the question I have is surely... The, the the facts that were have been revealed over the last day were part of his FBI background check when he was nominated to be Deputy Secretary of Defense. And okay, so, and Margaret, for those listeners who are cave dwellers and have not emerged from the cave in the last forty eight hours, what are the facts that you're referring to? So, in very short order, it 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 seems that um, you know sometime within the last ten years or so, there were a couple of. Uh, instances of domestic violence, basically, in Shanahan's household, um, allegedly committed by his wife against him and then by his son against his then ex-wife. Um, and the, the latter incident was was quite violent. And it seems that um, Shanahan kind of flew in after that incident and, you know, helped his son get legal representation and, you know, kind of shielded him from the legal process until there was sort of time to set up uh, his legal representation. There's some questions around that. It just seems to me it's such a significant episode in a person's life where the police were heavily involved. It's just strange to me that it wouldn't either wouldn't have shown up in the initial FBI background check or the committee didn't review, necessarily review the FBI background check the first time around. And both of those circumstances seem very odd to me on the committee I worked on, we would not have moved forward with the nomination unless the FBI background check had been done and other parts of the file had been reviewed. So there's just pieces of this I don't understand. So do you think it's possible, and I was wondering, we were talking about this yesterday, you and I, do do you think it's possible that what happened was they look at this when he's nominated for deputy defense secretary and everybody at that time is is saying, well, you know, He's 
he seems to be a grown-up. You know, we're trying to fortify the axis of adults, so it's kind of good to get him in there. He's got a domestic violence episode in his house, but he's not accused of domestic violence, right? It's somebody else's. And so it's just not that, like, big a deal that you want to derail you know, somebody who it's actually really important to get people like him into office. And so they kind of sweep it under the rug for that reason. And then nobody thinks about it again when he's nominated to be secretary, where, of course, something like that is going to come out. It's going to be a big deal and it's embarrassing. And it kind of catches everybody by surprise, not because it shouldn't have come out earlier, but because the fact that they kind of didn't deal with it earlier made people forget about it the second time. I, I suppose that's possible. But I read press reporting where members, Senate senators basically were saying, we didn't know about this the first time around. Uh, and that's really what kind of got my, my, my question marks in my brain going about this. I mean, things do happen. Things do get missed in the vetting process. Um, and I'll just give you one quick example. From my experience, we had uh, an ambassadorial nominee come in. His file had been completed. His background check had been completed. Everything looked fine. He came in for a discussion with committee staff. And one, one of the staff asked him about his heritage, which was related to the, comp- the country he was being nominated for. Well, after a few questions, it turned out he was a dual citizen with the United States and that country. And he held a passport there. Um, and this only came out literally in questioning with the committee staff. So things do, and that's under a, a rigorous uh, administration doing vetting. So these things do happen. This just seems like it, it definitely would have been in that FBI background check. And this was in a public hearing? It was not in a public hearing, no. Quinta, what, what do you think? How does this not come up before? Well, so first off, I think, as Margaret said, I wanted to just note at least two Democratic members of the committee have said that they hadn't heard anything. Tim Kaine told the press that he had not received an FBI report on Shanahan, and uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal as well said that he was not aware of it uh, when Shanahan was nominated for deputy secretary, and those are both people on the committee. So it really does seem like they were in the dark. I saw one suggestion by uh, Brad Moss, who is a lawyer who works on security clearance issues, that perhaps it hadn't showed up because... You know, if you ran a criminal database check, Shanahan himself wasn't involved in the violent conduct. So perhaps he it sort of would have fallen through the cracks that way. I think what what baffles me about the whole thing is if you're Pat Shanahan, how you put in your name, not even for for acting secretary of defense, but just for, for deputy secretary and – I can see how you can say to yourself, well, I didn't do anything wrong. But if his stated concern, which is what he's saying now, is that he he didn't want to harm his children by bringing up this issue and dredging it through the press again, how do you not think that's going to come out? I mean, the the judgment call there is just genuinely baffling to me. All right, Scott, I have a question for you. I look at this and I say, all right, when they don't nominate people – which is the the norm, right, that there are these seats that are empty for and jobs that are empty for very long periods of time. Then we, you know, bash them for that, and rightly so in my view. And when they do nominate people or install people in jobs, they have a remarkably high rate of having 
sort of disqualifying or, you know, highly embarrassing issues. I think this is actually qualitatively different from other administrations that, you know, you you've basically removed the A-team from availability. And so you're constantly considering people who, you know, just either – you either leave stuff vacant or you're dealing with people who have got issues, right? Do you know – is there any precedent for this that you're aware of, of, of this level of difficulty of filling positions? Not to this level that I can recall. You know, Shanahan would not have been – if he did encounter trouble getting the nomination, he wouldn't be the first Secretary of Defense nominee to be withdrawn or or to withdraw. We know George H.W. Bush had a nominee that John was withdrawn. John Tower. Exactly. And so we – you know, this is – it's not unprecedented. The scale does seem exceptional and remarkable. And one part of it may be what you described, the fact that they are digging from a little bit of a difficult pool for people who are inside of their policy agenda that are interested in working for the administration. That that may be part of it. But I suspect that, that, that if this administration really wanted to hire technocrats to get people who are subject matter experts into these positions, that they could find nominees. I think a lot of civil servants would be willing to, to play in that role who are currently continuing to execute their function um, in the department uh, or whatever department they may be working in. In my mind, I think a lot of it comes down to this administration's risk tolerance and willingness to actually engage in Congress. Nominations are one spot where Congress has leverage over this administration, both Democrats and Republicans, with which, particularly in the Senate, it has, and particularly around defense and foreign relations issues, it has an increasingly tense relationship with. And I think this is really representative of the fact this administration just isn't interested in having these nomination fights compared to everything else it has on its agenda that it wants to use its political capital with, with Congress. Um, it's not that it's necessarily trying to go around things and impose its own people, although there are examples of that. I think the Ken Cuccinelli case at USCIS is the one, best example there, although there's probably a little bit more of a political angle than a you know internal Machiavellian angle. But a lot of these positions, I just don't think that they see it as worth it to them to put up the fight um, when they can have actings in place and still save their political capital for other purposes. And in the case of Shanahan, I think we have to remember he was originally nominated in March 2017 for the deputy secretary position. It's a period when this administration had lots of vetting to do, didn't have experience doing it, had lots of recorded problems with their vetting. And frankly, the committees were churning through a bunch of nominees at that position and probably wasn't giving it the same scrutiny. And the deputy secretary position just isn't as high profile as the secretary of defense. So I find it a little surprising this didn't come up, but not totally shocking. I would also just note that Robert Costa reported, I think yesterday, that Senate Republicans had privately told the White House that they don't have time on the calendar and the political capital themselves for a difficult uh, secretary of defense confirmation fight this summer and fall. So there's also static coming from the Senate side. All right. I'm interested in all of this as precedent. If I were a reasonable Democratic presidential nominee, pick among your 23, and I looked at this situation, I, one lesson I would take away from it is that there is not substantial political pushback in response to long-term actings in large numbers across multiple administrations. And given how difficult the Senate is about nominations, I might take the view that, yeah, the FVRA gives me a lot of latitude to kind of go it alone. And so I'm just going to take advantage of that to the maximum extent possible and uh, so my question, Quinta, is, is the FVRA the new AUMF? 
you know, something Congress passes that gives a little bit of authority and administration after administration reads immense amount into it in the absence of congressional pushback and it becomes the camel's nose under the tent that then destroys the whole tent. Well, first off, I want to say I think FVRA does not roll off the tongue in the same way that AOMF does. That's because you haven't said it enough. I mean, um, like if we say it over and over and over again for the next 17 years, it's going to roll off the I mean, tongue I pretty know. good. I keep tripping over it. That's um, why I've been I, trying to call it the FIVRA, which the FIVRA, exactly. comes out a lot more Perfect. easily. Perfect. But no, I mean, As I think – As opposed to the AOMF. <laughs> also kind of works. So – there's another statute that I have in mind here also, which is the – it's not four letters, but the NEA, the National Emergencies Act. And I think as with the AOMF, as with the Vacancies Reform Act, these are all examples of statutes that Congress kind of passed, forgot about, and the executive has kind of taken and run with them. In the case of the AOMF, that's been a long-running process, obviously – in the case, the National Emergencies Act, you can argue about how far previous administrations stretched it, I, although I think it's fair to say that the Trump administration has really taken it and run with it. The Vacancies Reform Act, as far as I am aware, the Trump administration is really the first example we've had of just how big the loopholes are there. And as Scott hinted, the Ken Cuccinelli example is a great one. So for listeners who aren't familiar, basically what happened is Francis Cisna had previously held the position of the director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Cisna, who is an immigration hardliner, was pushed out for not being hardline enough. We can talk about that another time. The administration decided they wanted to appoint former Virginia Attorney General Ken Cuccinelli to this position. There's one problem, which is that they're not going to be able to confirm him because he's burned a lot of bridges with the Republican caucus in the Senate. And the FVRA also doesn't actually provide a way to put him in there because Cuccinelli had not previously been an employee of the federal government, much less an employee of USCIS or even DHS. So what the administration did was basically create a new position that they then put Cuccinelli into to make him the first assistant to the vacant director of USCIS position, which now means that because he has been appointed as the principal deputy director of USCIS, distinct from the previously filled uh, position of deputy director of USCIS, he can now take the role of acting. And this is not something that is provided for in the FVRA, but it is an example of just how big the loopholes are, that you can kind of create this new position, sort of bootstrap this person into it, and he now gets to serve for 210 days. It's exactly like uh, using the AUMF to attack Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, folks, right? I mean, you have a sort of bootstrapped... So, and this is Ken Cuccinelli, is AQAP. I don't want to compare people to terrorists. <laughs> it's, just, uh, it's just a, uh, you know, layers and layers of interpretive... Uh, shall we say, additions until you get to you can – and by the way, I actually think it's reasonable in the case of AQAP. 
you can attack people who weren't even born at the time of 9-11 in a group that didn't exist at the time of 9-11 in a part of the world that is not geographically related to anything involving 9-11. And the reason you can get away with it is that Congress doesn't actually object to it, which brings me to the final question, Margaret, in this segment. Is Congress going to be as lacks about its prerogatives in the appointment space as it has been in the war powers space? I think it's going to depend on the partisan composition, uh, whatever kind of Congress we end up in the next Congress. So I think what you're seeing right now is a Republican Senate that is essentially sort of cooperating with a Republican president um, and working in a cooperative way with him. So I don't see anything sort of happening on the legislative side during this Congress. You could have a different situation, though, going forward. All right. Speaking of frictions between Congress and the administration, there continue to be substantial oversight frictions uh, related to fallout from the Mueller report and other things. In the last week, we've seen Hope Hicks heading to uh, Congress, uh, to, to the House for her testimony. We've also seen an OLC opinion that says that actually that law that says you have to turn over the president's tax return doesn't really mean what it says, at least not if you don't want to. Margaret, get us started. What's what's the sort of overview look at where Congress and the administration stand on on these various standoffs? So a ton has happened in this space, even since the last time I was on rational security, which was not that long ago. So it shows you how quickly and how much is going on in this space. But really where I want to start is I, uh, and Quinta knows this, I, I sat down because I wanted to write an article for Lawfare that the title of which was The Separation of Powers is Working. And so that was my sort of starting premise. And that sounds that sounds like makes me feel good. <laughs> I know, and I'm an optimist. And so that's why I started with the title, and then I was going to see if I could write that piece. Um, it's been difficult to do, and the answer in the end maybe we don't quite know yet. And so it's it's too early to write that article. But what I can tell you is that at the current moment, I'm not particularly optimistic. How about some of the separation of powers <laughs> are working? Separation of powers is kind of working. <laughs> beginning to work around the edges or something like that. The separation of powers is thinking about right. working. Right. Well, so let me just give you my sort of status sort of check on, on where we are. So there have been a couple of instances where what we see is something that sort of looks like a normal accommodation between the executive and the legislative branch. So I have three just very quick examples of this. The one that I think gives the most optimism to me is that on June 10th, Chairman Jerry Nadler, um, he held off on criminal contempt proceedings for Bill Barr and Don McGahn in connection with their testimony about the Mueller report because the Justice Department had begun sharing special counsel Mueller's, quote, most important files with lawmakers. And so, you know, this was an instance where it seems like the, the this push and pull between the executive and the legislative branch is sort of starting to work. Um, and the Judiciary Committee is starting to get some meaningful documents. And as a result, the Judiciary Committee sort of held off on criminal contempt proceedings. 
Just to be clear, the next day on June 11th, the full House of Representatives passed a resolution authorizing Nadler to pursue civil contempt actions in court against Barr and McGahn if that's needed. So there are still some of these sort of Damocles things in place. But that's the one that gives me the most optimism. There are a couple that are a little more mixed, though. So the second example is in late April, Chairman Elijah Cummings, who's chairman of the House Oversight Committee, held off on a contempt proceeding against um, a guy named Carl Klein. He had been he's an administration official. He had been subpoenaed to testify before the committee on the Trump administration's sort of reversal of 25 denials of security clearance applications. What happened was there was a sort of tense negotiation that went on between the the committee and the White House. And in the end, where they landed was basically a private interview by the committee of this key person on this issue, Carl Klein. And he was also very limited in terms of what the White House counsel would allow him to talk about. So where you landed was a situation where the public is not getting to hear live testimony about an important issue. And because of the parameters that the White House has negotiated on what the person Carl Klein will say, the committee is not really getting that much information either. But you did have someone actually going in and talking to a committee. I view the Hope Hicks, and this is the third example, the Hope Hicks situation is kind of similar to the Carl Klein one, where, you know, the White House claimed a very wide sort of absolute immunity that she didn't have to come in and talk about anything. There wasn't a negotiation, and she ended up going in and doing a private transcribed interview that we're told may be released to the public. But again, the public is being deprived of that live back and forth, that live testimony. And according to press reports, what she was allowed to talk about was actually really quite narrow and constrained. She was not permitted by White House counsel to talk about basically anything during her time at the White House. And they also, apparently White House lawyers even objected to Hope Hicks discussing um, episodes that occurred after she left the White House. And Hicks went along with that. And Hicks is an important witness. Hope Hicks is an important witness for the Mueller investigation because she's essentially involved in or a witness to five instances of obstruction of justice. So I'm feeling unsatisfied by, you know, even when we have witnesses going in and talking to committees, it's, it's unsatisfying from the perspective of, you know, the Congress of getting what it needs and the public getting to see sort of live back and forth of what's going on. Scott, what do you make of the OLC opinion on uh, the tax returns matter? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on Friday, we saw at 4.30 p.m., which when you see an OLC opinion drop at 4.30 p.m., which is happening more and more often, it is not a sign of confidence in how that opinion is going to be received generally. We saw on Friday this opinion drop that essentially says a request, not a subpoena, but a request under a statutory provision by the Ways and Means Committee, the House Ways and Means Committee's chairman, Congressman Neal, for Trump's tax return had been properly denied um, by Secretary Mnuchin. Uh, not only that, had been denied primarily on constitutional grounds. What OLC came and said is that this statute says that the Ways and Committee's chairman flat out can request the tax returns for individuals. It's able to do that by statute. There are no prerequisites to that. And statute is the only thing actually protecting our tax returns from public disclosure. Uh, it's not clear there's any constitutional right or any other reason why the federal government couldn't just choose to make them all publicly available to everyone. They actually say that in the OLC opinion. They believe Congress could if it chose to. But what they said is that in not putting any conditions on this authority of the chairman to make this request, it is not in fact without conditions. Instead, Congress can only do that 
in line with what it views, the OSC views, as its constitutional authority. It must have what OSC calls a legislative purpose to make that sort of request. And where that request is not consistent with a legislative purpose, OLC says the secretary is correct in declining that request. That's kind of problematic perspective from a lot of different views in this. Again, these are all statutory rights and statutory regimes that Congress set up. Um, the idea that Congress could disclose all these documents to the entire public, but instead has chosen just to establish a mechanism in place that by which they can be disclosed, and somehow that it's constitutionally constitution prohibited from doing that, but not from public disclosure, is a real tension there to me. But Margaret, so you've written about this exact issue in a different context. Uh, which is the administration's claim that it gets to evaluate the legitimacy of congressional legislative purpose in response to a subpoena. I assume this whole argument is going to fall apart once the D.C. Circuit confronts it in – not in this context because this litigation will be behind that, but uh, in the context of the subpoena to the Mazars accounting firm that has – also this tax information, uh, as well as some other litigations. OLC can say this all at once, but there's going to be some judicial authority on this point really soon, right? I think, yes, that's right. And this type of argument is precisely the type of argument that Pat Chipalone and the White House Counsel's Office are making in connection with all of these uh, requests for information in more of an, in the sphere of like executive privilege. So they're just sort of grafting that argument over to this statutory analysis, which again, is sort of kind of crazy to me. Um, and I agree with Scott in reading the opinion. I mean, it's I think it's an embarrassing opinion to have been issued by the Office of Legal Counsel. Um, I feel bad for who, whatever you know, career attorney had to write it. I think it's just it's just really not not impressive at all. So, but I do think you know that that Mazar's case that you talked about, the the judge, the district court judge in that case, was very clear that uh, you know he felt that this you know the judiciary's role in this legislative purpose was very limited, and what the court was going to be quite deferential to Congress in terms of what they would be requesting. You know, here in addition, you have this statutory obligation that is very clear on its face, and so this one actually is even—it's even clearer than the one that is currently moving through the courts um, in this question of legitimate legislative purpose. All right, so I want to make the argument that Margaret, your original thesis—that separation of powers is working—is in fact exactly right, and that the problem is that you're losing confidence in it not that there's actually reason to doubt it. So let me break down what I think is the strong version of your argument and you guys attack it. Number one, what we're seeing is the Trump administration asserting a whole lot of legal positions that in fact prior administrations have sometimes asserted and sometimes not had the audacity to assert, but they've never been forced to a definitive legal test. And what the administration is doing is forcing all of them to a legal test or to legal tests at the same time. And that means that there's this period of time where it looks like Congress is getting nothing or next to nothing. But in fact, these positions are sorting hierarchically according to how plausible they are as a matter of merit. And they will be disposed of 
in roughly ascending order of seriousness. So the first one to go will be this legislative purpose evaluation, which affects both the Mazars stuff, a bunch of, a whole bunch of them, and the tax returns material. Once you clear that brush, then you have this question of do people have to show up at all, right? This sort of executive immunity from testimony. And then once you clear that, you have the Hope Hicks question, which is, okay, once she has to show up, how much does she actually have to say and what are the specific boundaries of executive privilege? It isn't reasonable, in my view, for us to expect all of this stuff is going to get cleared up at the same time. We've never had an administration that has asserted all of these positions together at once. And the congressional side has not lost on anything yet. And it is to the extent that district courts are starting to rule, it is starting to win. And now some of those questions are going up to the, the circuit courts. And so what you're really saying is that the administration is forcing the separation of powers to be litigated rather than simply capitulating to Congress's view of them, though in many cases, Congress's view will and I think ultimately should prevail. So happy rosy scenario. Quinta, you're like, you're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm. what I want to say is that these are both falsifiable hypotheses, right? I mean, we have a set of facts that Congress has made these requests that, to me at least, seem to be within its power. The administration is pushing back against them using, I would argue, increasingly absurd legal arguments. And now it's in the courts. And as this goes forward, I think the big question is, A, how the courts handle it. We already, as Margaret said, had a peak of that in the Mazar's opinion. And B, how the administration responds to the courts. Because we've already seen a version of this story before where the administration basically comes up with a policy, justifies it based on pretext, litigates it um, through interlocutory appeals all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court either takes it up or says, you know, you crazy kids work it out among yourselves. And then we kind of see where we go from there. And in that case, I think there's a kind of a mixed record. Obviously, the travel ban is the big example, but there's also the transgender service ban, the litigation over Trump's declaration of emergency along the border, which is currently ongoing. And now we're going to see this in terms of the executive's relationship with Congress. And Ben, I agree with you that – and or I agree with you and with Margaret's original thesis that – you can definitely look at this and saying we're in the early stages of the process that is supposed to play out. I think where I may end up siding with Margaret's sort of current trepidation is that I at least have a similar trepidation that A, the courts are up to the task, and B, the administration will, let's just say, respond in good faith to whatever the courts eventually rule. Scott? Well, I, you know, I think we what we said is true. We need to see how these cases play out before we can really pass judgment on the separation of powers. The one thing I'll note, though, is that this does raise a whole new slew of questions because it's the first time Congress has really had to go litigate these and raise the question as to the extent they can over the question of legislative standing, for which there's been a lot of ambiguity. Now, there's good precedent in the lower courts and the D.C. district courts that says for at least enforcing subpoenas, congressional committees 
uh, or congressional cha- chambers of Congress can have standing to pursue their investigatory rights. But there is a question as to whether how much further that goes or what the preconditions of that standing is in certain other circumstances. And that really will bear on how effective the courts are going to be in adjudicating these sorts of disputes. So I would just say, you know, I I do think we're in the it's too soon to tell whether the separation of powers is actually working. Um, but I would also say time is running out. These matters are pertinent, you know, within the context of a two-year congressional time period. Once there's a new election and a new Congress, a lot of this gets reset. And so the question is how much progress can be made in the courts, which is part of the separation of powers, before this this current Congress is is gone, essentially. Well, the separation of powers may or may not be working, but the separation of power grids certainly is working. That was a Shane-level transition. I'm proud of it. Shane, (laughs) eat your heart out. We have heard a lot of reporting that the Russians are in our power grid, and the New York Times reported this week that we are all over the Russian power grid. Scott, so let's start with what the New York Times reported here and how does it advance the ball over what we already knew about U.S. offensive cyber operations in, in Russia? Well, what the New York Times has told us essentially is that United States hackers, United States kind of cyber agents have put themselves into Russian networks that manage their core kind of civilian infrastructure, presumably power grids and other systems, and have embedded tools in there that will allow them to affect those systems if and when they need to, kind of booby traps or back doors to be able to access them. And this is a sort of reciprocal action. This is the sort of thing we have accused Russians, among others, of doing to our power grid and other aspects of our infrastructure for many years now. And it appears to be, or at least claims to be, according to this article, members of the U.S. government acting on new authorities provided to them in a recent NDAA to kind of respond in kind to those affronts by the Russians as well as the Chinese, the Iranians, and the North Koreans, if I recall correctly. Um, and so it may be kind of the tip of the spear of other sorts of operations. But I, you know, some experts have been pointing out reasons to be a little skeptical of some of the claims in the story as well, which I think are worth bearing in mind. All right. So before we get to the reasons to be skeptical, let's just talk a little bit about the background here. So it is certainly the case that Cyber Command under current uh, Cyber Command uh, head and NSA head uh, Nakasone has been you know, more aggressive, right? We know that they took down the Internet Research Agency in the period right around uh, for a few days right around the 2018 congressional election. And it's also the case that they have a very comparatively aggressive sense of defense forward in cyber, right? You have to have a persistent presence in adversary computer systems if you're going to prevent those adversaries from attacking you, right? That's not anything controversial. I think the the novelty in this story is the idea that we have developed some degree of, of offensive capacity about specific uh, Russian power grid systems that we've left code in them, intending some of that code to be discovered and left presumably suggestive, suggestive that there is other code that is kind of available to be triggered whenever we want to trigger it. In addition, there's some explosive 
elements of the story that the president himself was not briefed on the details of this because he really doesn't like it when people talk about Russia and cyber. And so you just kind of keep the details at the lower levels. So my question is, is any aspect of this surprising and which aspects of it is there reason to be skeptical about? So the part of the story that is surprising to me is that I I just can't figure out why the U.S., you know, professionals or the U.S. government would want this information about these types of weapons to be out there in the public. I just don't understand that because it seems to me if you announce something like this publicly, you reveal what is there and then you lose the the capacity of whatever you sort of placed in there. So that's the piece of this that I just can't wrap my mind around why. Why, why so public? So... Uh, I will say on the Daily, the New York Times podcast, David Sanger, one of the reporters on the story, went on and basically suggested that his understanding that perhaps it may be that the U.S. wants Russia to know that that information is there and I guess wants to communicate that in the public sphere. I'm not sure why that's necessary as opposed to just, you know, putting code in places where they can see it, but wanted to make that particularly aggressive. Sanger's metaphor was in Dr. Strangelove at the end of the movie when the whole world gets blown up because the Soviets have been working on a doomsday device. They haven't told the Americans that they have it. So the Americans inadvertently drop a nuclear bomb on Russia, uh, not knowing that Russia has set up a device that will immediately nuke the entire world if they do so. So I'm not going to break up my Peter Sellers impression on air, but I will say that there is a point where the Dr. Strangelove character yells, why didn't you tell them? And at least from what Sanger was saying on the podcast, whether or not that is a good strategy or what whether that's what the government was really doing, that seemed to be what he was suggesting was at play here. Well, you know, and I find that account of this a little bit more persuasive than the idea that these were actually tools deployed for the purpose of using them as tools to affect the Russian database. Um, and there's a great thread on this by Tom Ritt, I should say, who's published with Lawfare and is a cyber expert. Um, that's kind of informs my thinking on this. You know, certainly pointing out these tools is going to reveal that they exist to the Russians and make them unavailable. On top of that, it's going to initiate a whole scrub of these systems. Uh, and to the extent you have other tools that maybe you're not talking about directly, you're massively increasing the risk of they're going to get exposed, identified, or nullified uh, by the Russians or any impact they may have somehow kind of contained or cordoned off. On top of that, you know, another major factor is that these are tools that would cut off electricity to massive civilian populations with massive human cost. That's maybe not something we would be surprised to see the Russians pursue even in an armed conflict circumstance. You know, we've seen them bomb hospitals in Syria and things like that. I would be surprised if that's a serious measure that the United States is necessarily ready to undertake uh, in all but the most extreme of circumstances. All right. But let me push you on that, Scott, because – you could make exactly the same argument about intercontinental ballistic missiles. You know, these are, you know, city destroying warheads and we have a lot of them and it's public that we have a lot of them and our position is we would never ever ever use them except when we would. Right? And we want people to know that we have them and we want people to know that the circumstances in which we would use them is not never. So why isn't 
if you're trying to send a message to Vladimir Putin, a deterrent message about Russian activity in cyberspace, we are in your systems and you do not know the circumstances in which we would you know, plunge Moscow into darkness. And you should give that some thought before you monkey around in our systems. Why is it different from any other deterrent situation where having the capability and having the adversary know that you have the capability is important to not having to use the capability? No, I think that's, that is the exact circumstance. But that means that it's less important that you actually have these tools in place with the intention to deploy them than project the perception of capacity and the perception of willingness. It's all about signaling. It's about kind of the mad dog strategy of projecting a willingness to do so. But if you are actually cybercom and you are actually thinking about what are the deployable strategic tools that we will actually realistically use to put pressure against Russia in a variety of circumstances, our most flexible, useful tools, they are not these because these are the last use options. These are the most severe options. Instead, you're going to protect and harbor and try and keep secret the variety of other tools you have and maybe even turn attention towards these that you're much less likely to use so that Russian resources are going to be focused on those efforts. So personally, you know, I I think that there's a good chance that this is as much part of an information campaign as it is about any description of actual U.S. capacity. It's about what we're messaging to the Russians, not as much about necessarily what we're actually doing to them. So I I will say whatever the goal was in making this information public, the fact that the president then tweeted his displeasure about it. It's false and treason. Exactly. It is both false and it's treason for the New York Times to report it. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. Which, I mean, boy, there's a lot to talk about there and I won't go into the whole thing. But if you're Russia and so say say we're going to go with the Dr. Strangelove deterrence thesis, right? If the the idea within Cybercom is you make this information public, you're signaling to Russia – you know, here we are. And then the president comes out and tweets, we're not doing this. And if we were doing it, I wouldn't like it. And also the New York Times just committed treason. I mean, if you're the Kremlin, what message are you going to take from that? So I don't know if this is really a problem that you can get around or if it's just inherent to the nature of the increasingly fragmented non-unitary executive under President Trump. But it really does seem to drive home just how splintered the executive is right now. And it's a really dramatic example of, I mean, pushing the decision on these cyber operations down from the presidential level to cybercom. You can argue about the merits of that, whether or not it's a good idea under any administration. But under this particular administration, it has a very particular meaning that uh, whether or not we're comfortable with it certainly seems to just be confusing. Margaret, what what treasonous final false word do you have on this subject? Oh, so many. I guess I will be so interested to see how this space develops going forward, because as the news reports have pointed out, there is a statutory basis, and and Scott mentioned it, Section 1642 of the National Defense Authorization Act from uh, last year. Um, And this, in essence... It, you can think we were talking about FIVRA being an AUMF. This is almost like a cyber AUMF. And so I do wonder whether Congress is going to regret 
giving so much authority to the executive branch in particular at these lower levels um, and having them engage potentially in aggressive types of actions um, and making statements about these things. I just I'm very interested to see, you know, how will we feel about this particular authority in 17 years? Uh, That's a question in my mind. Thank you for helping me make FIFRA happen, by the way. I appreciate that. Uh, And that brings us to object lessons. Margaret, what do you have? Oh, I have the greatest thing. Um, Let me pull it out (laughs) here. Is that a false treasonous greatest thing? (laughs) So my object lesson is an organization I learned about just last week, uh, and it's just very cool. Um, It's called the African Middle Eastern Leadership Project that's it. So AML, A-M-E-L, AML project. And the mission is to mobilize, empower, and unite millennial leaders and activists from the Middle East and Africa to build resilient, inclusive societies that are free from discrimination, persecution, and violent coercion, and to advocate for policies in support of these goals. Uh, It's focused on millennials. It's focused on the next generation of leaders in Africa and the Middle East. It's doing a lot of great work. And I just think it's a really kind of cool organization. I'm following their work closely. Excellent. Scott? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, This week, something very interesting is going to happen in Congress. We're going to see the first set of votes to what may not be the third or the fourth, but in fact, all the way up to the 23rd and 24th vetoes of the Trump administration, uh, which will be over 22 joint resolutions disapproving a number of arms sales the administration has tried to push through to Middle Eastern countries. Uh, It's a really novel debate, not something that we've really seen happen in history with lots of interesting legal questions. And if nothing else, if uh, the president does end up vetoing all 22 of those joint resolutions to go forward with the arms sales, he will be setting a record for the most number of vetoes, certainly in the sense the Clinton administration, and will be close to busting the total number of vetoes for the Clinton administration in his first two years in office. All right. Can I ask you a few uh, questions about this? Because I have so many questions about this object. Is the object lesson the 22 vetoes or is the object lessons the, the 22 resolutions of disapproval that the president – The 22 resolutions of disapproval. I see. Because a veto is kind of like too ethereal to be an it's object. The, exactly. Right? Yeah. Well, these resolutions, you can download them on congress.gov. I have. All right. <laughs> They're as interesting as they sound. Second question. Is Congress framing these as 22 separate resolutions yes. in order to force the president to issue 22 separate vetoes? Precisely correct. All well, right. So you, Trump you, has the most vetoes, the best vetoes. Exactly. Because I – yeah, and now he can prove it. Right, because I actually think that's proving exactly Quintus' point. Like Trump would want to have the most vetoes, right? Maybe. Well, I'm not sure. So far, he's been resistant to the idea, but uh, we will see. All right. Quinta. Gold-plated vetoes. What what, what acting object lesson do you have for us today? So my object is not a veto, but a person. And that person is Catherine Gorka. You objectifying Catherine Gorka? I don't know about that. Uh, She is currently serving the Department of Homeland Security, and she will soon be appointed to uh, be the press secretary for Customs and Border Protection. And the reason you might be familiar with her name is for a couple of reasons. One is that she's been in DHS, I think, since around the beginning of the administration. She made some waves when she was appointed for stuff that she wrote on Breitbart, specifically stuff that was critical of Islam, let's say. She immediately, when she joined the department, she was working on the Countering Violent Extremism Program. Um, The Huffington Post reported that she had worked to eliminate a grant for an organization called Life After Hate, which was meant to reach out to former white supremacists um, and sort of help reintegrate into society. And the most important thing is that she is married to 
doctor, Sebastian Gorka, everyone's favorite Hungarian, who has finally blocked me on Twitter. I'm very proud about that. And spends most of his time just kind of driving around in his Mustang that has license plates that say Art War on them. I think Art War is is people should tweet pictures of the Art War Mustang at Rational Security uh, whenever you see them. Uh, we we, we want to see pictures of, of Seb Gorka's car. Also, if you find the two D.C. residents that had Art of War and Art of War, <laughs> I would be interested in seeing those <laughs> yeah, as well. Right. Who had uh, the license plates that prevented Sebastian <laughs> Gorka from getting the actual Art of War license plate? Yeah, so I'm, I'm just – I am always on the lookout for more Gorka content and I just want to say that CBP has – I'm sure will deliver going forward. What's your object lesson, yeah. Ben? So my object lesson this week, folks, is uh, a post that we put up this week uh, for our new fall intern at Lawfare. And uh, you can find the posting on the Lawfare site. It's sitting there right on our front page. And uh, we'll link to it from our show page as well. Uh, If you are uh, a young person who is uh, interested in Lawfare and has spare time this fall. We want to hear from you. So please come come work for us and we'll make fun of you on the air. And fun with you. And fun with <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, that, that's not very inviting. We're very yeah. nice. <laughs> We're very fun. And that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is brought to you by Lawfare. Our uh, show page and all the objects and all the fun stuff is available on the site And by the way, we have a cool merch store with lots of great Rational Security merch, uh, including, by the way, we don't have Rational Security lapel pins, but we have the awesome new Lawfare lapel pin up on the site. You should share Rational Security on social media. Some of you maybe have heard of social media. It's this thing where you can share things. And uh, you should share the show. And you should also review and rate the show. Uh, And you know how many stars we deserve. By the way, I just want to say to all of you, the Lawfare podcast is actually kicking Rational Security's ass right now in, (laughs) in reviews and ratings on the iTunes store and other stores. So you all are lagging behind the Lawfare podcast listenership in uh, posting reviews and ratings. So I want you to get on it and, you know, kick that other podcast's ass, all right? The Lawfare but check out the Monday's episode about the Iran, the Iran situation. Yeah, also listen to the Lawfare <laughs> podcast and review and rate that too. But I'm trying to set up a friendly rivalry between, <laughs> between the listenerships here, Scott. Um, <laughs> the Lawfare podcast is pro- – what? Rational Security is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our recording engineer this week was Michaela Fogel. Our music this week was performed by the cover band, which only performs other people's stuff, Pat Shanahan and the Actings. Fair. Wow, Wow, that actually hit like a thud. No, that's not true. Our music is, as ever, performed by Sophia Yan, who is right now reporting from Hong Kong. We'll be back next week with our full permanent Senate-confirmed cast, and we'll talk to you then. (laughs) 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 